0: Welcome to another episode of I Buzz the Animal Care and Welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform. I'm your host Sabrina Brando and this month, January 2021, we take a deep dive into the topic of animal welfare assessments on pause. Today, I'm delighted to welcome a host of different speakers who are all going to share their top three of thoughts, considerations and visions as it comes to animal welfare assessments. You will hear from Dr. Elizabeth Herelko, Dr. Catherine Cronin, Darren Minier, Dr. Eduardo Fernandez, Dr. Samantha Ward, Dr. Jason Waters, Dr. Stephanie Allard, and myself. Of course, there are many other animal welfare specialists and practitioners, so this won't be the last multi-speaker podcast with lots of insights of people studying and working with animals. Welcome Betsy Harelko, who is the Animal Welfare and Research Manager at the Smithsonian National Zoo. Delighted that you are also willing to share your top three when it comes to animal welfare assessments.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Um, My top three concepts that I think are very important when you're putting together welfare assessments are thinking about outputs, buy-in and cohesion. So we think about outputs, we're thinking about, we've got our inputs, the things that we provide for animals, and then we have the outputs, the concepts that, uh, how they're responding to those inputs and the things that we provide to them. And a lot of the assessments that we have out there are really wonderful and heavily focused on inputs, which are things that we can easily control. And I think it's really helpful to focus on those outputs and remind us, remind ourselves that animals can tell us so much more. It's also much more time intensive to try to figure out. So working on these outputs and thinking about how can we calculate and formulate ways to design metrics that make this easy and simple, seamless within our day so that we can take all of that information that's in animal keepers heads and document it in a way that we can look at this data was just really, really crucial to the success of of assessments. For buy-in, Figuring out what those outputs are that are important is key to, to the success of, of the metrics that we use. So buy-in from all stakeholders is crucial to this success. So every stakeholder needs to be able to participate in the process. And that might just be discussions beforehand or just preparing what those definitions are especially. So we think about, we have different categories of what we're going to measure. If we focus on the outputs and then we have a team who's going to define them, they need to be on board and accepting with what those definitions are. They're the ones who are doing this every single day and have all of this information in their heads, meeting together, having an opportunity to agree upon what those definitions are Is where the magic of all of this happens and where it comes together. What is normal for a lion? What's normal at a certain age? And taking things that is kind of the art of keeping and trying to transition that into how we really define it and share and communicate in a way that makes sense to everyone. All stakeholders, I also want to talk about this buy-in in terms of From the top to the bottom, from the bottom to the top, from the left to the right, all the sides, everyone is important in this. And so making sure that folks have a chance to feel that their input is valued is a cultural aspect of welfare assessments that's really important to make sure everyone understands how important they are. Uh, Meeting with all of these folks to make it happen is so labor intensive, but I think is just such a huge part of making it valuable and valued in the long run. And with that buy-in, when you're meeting with all those stakeholders, it ties into this third concept that I like to think about and cohesion. We don't wanna just do this to tick a box. We wanna make it work for you, for all of the stakeholders. So can these assessments tie into other things that you do? How can you help avoid overlap in the things that you're documenting. We know that keepers fill out surveys all the time. They're always thinking about metrics to understand their animals and to share that information in keeper reports, in conversations with their supervisors and the veterinarians. How can we make sure that we're not just ticking the box, we're not giving extra busy work, that it's actually something of value? And how can we use this information in a longitudinal form So data that supports the in the now moment, but also is something that we can look back over time to support end of life decisions. So I'd like to think of this cohesion as a seamless process of understanding what it is that's important to animals, looping back to those outputs, what's important to our stakeholders in the buy-in and how it actually works within their entire day and how they see the future of how they're managing their animals.
0: Wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Dr. Herelko, for sharing your top three of animal welfare assessments. Great. Thank you so much. Delighted to welcome Dr. Katrin Cronin, and she is the senior animal welfare scientist, the animal welfare science program at the Lincoln Park Zoo, and also a member of the AZA Animal Welfare Committee. Welcome, Katie. Thank you, Sabrina,
2: Um, and thank you for inviting me to share uh, my ideas about animal welfare assessments. Um, I'm really excited to be able to um, share some of the things that we've learned at Lincoln Park Zoo um, and see if they're helpful to other people. Um, The first thing I would say is to rely on science when it's available to develop your tool, to develop your assessment approaches. Um, to develop your welfare indicators for species but to not get held up by all that we don't yet know. There is a lot that we have not yet learned about animal welfare and I think it's easy to sometimes feel like we need to wait and wait for the best information and keep doing as we're doing um, until we get the science and I think if we wait for all of the science to come in um, we'll be waiting for a long time. So I would say use the science that's available, um, but use information that is from related species or related scenarios to make um, your best guess for how to move forward when you can. Um, And then keep note that it is your best guess and update when there's more information available. But I would say don't let don't let where we are with our scientific process hold you back from doing the best that you can. The second thing I would say is to make it practical, take a practical approach. Um, if people can't use it, if you've set up to something that's too complicated, takes too long, um, involves too many people, um, it, it won't get off the ground. And so what we've found is that if we start with something um, simple and then build, As people get on board and get used to going through the process, then we have a lot more success. So I think, you know, make sure that it's practical and feasible for your institution or your animals, um, and then build from there. The third thing I would say is to make discussion key and discussion of from multiple people. Um, We have actually found that um, you know, we, we have three people involved in every welfare assessment, which might sound not practical in the sense that you would have three people. Um, we have um, somebody who um, takes care of the animals every day, a caretaker who's very familiar with the animals, we have a manager um, over that area, and we have an outside area person involved in our welfare assessments. And. We actually call them welfare discussion tools rather than welfare assessment tools sort of acknowledging where we're at with the science and how important the discussion is and I think that this these multiple perspectives have actually made our process work really well for two reasons one is because we get different um, ideas and different views on the animals and different views into what's possible and the other is because we get buy-in people are involved in the process and they see that it works and then they're eager to do it next time um, and, you know, for us, these three people have actually managed, you know, because we do so many welfare assessments or welfare discussions, um, people are getting used to being pretty efficient with it and bringing up the most important things. And, you know, we don't have to do all of the dance of making sure that we're super, um, you know, um, cautious about how we talk about things because we're getting used to it and we're and we all um, have limited time and, and can manage to do it really efficiently. Um, so, The discussion is key for us and i think that that has made it um, a really valuable process Um, so i would say those are my three things use the science but don't get held up by it make it
0: practical and bring in discussion wonderful thank you so much for sharing these and i love this type you know the name like welfare discussion tools that's just great thank you so much for sharing these three tips and uh, insights into you know animal welfare assessments for this month on the Practical Animal Welfare Science Platform. Thank you, Katie. Yeah, thank you. Welcome Dr. Eduardo Fernandez, Senior Lecturer, Animal Behavioral Welfare and Ethics at the School of Animal and Veterinary Science at the University of Adelaide. Delighted to have you on the podcast and share your top three with regards to animal welfare assessments.
3: Hi. So, uh, should I just go into this now? Uh, Absolutely. Are we,
0: Take
2: it you... away.
3: Okay. So I didn't know how much you wanted to ask before that, but you know, that's okay. We can start off right there. Um, so, uh, my top three, I mean, uh, and not necessarily in this order, um, in terms of relevant to animal welfare, uh, the first that I'm going to mention, and anybody who knows me, anybody who's familiar with what I tend to talk about knows I'm going to talk about data. Um, so data is absolutely critical for any type of measurement, uh, uh, well, for, for any assessment of welfare, um, without, uh, the use of data, we don't know, uh, what effect enrichment necessarily has. We don't know effect what, uh, Uh, If there are welfare related improvements, because as a result of husbandry or any other training procedures, uh, data allows us to assess that. But equally important is also how you collect data, because now we can talk about uh, are we using ethograms? What type of measurement system are we using with those ethograms? Is it continuous? Is it discontinuous? If it's discontinuous, there are some methods that are better than others. Um, so I generally avoid any type of interval sampling because uh, the, the studies out there, and in fact, we have a paper under review right now that shows that interval sampling is inferior to some type of pinpoint sampling um, for uh, all, for pretty much across the board for behavioral measurement. Um, and then also what you're doing other, uh, there may be other things you're measuring, not just behavior, but physiological measures. at um, So heart rate, um, something in relation to court levels um, that may indicate stress, um, and also what other things behaviorally you're measuring other than uh, uh, through ethograms. So are you using any type of discrete trial recording? Um, Behavioral uh, variability, Uh, there's a a recent paper out about the use of uh, behavioral diversity Um, that covers all the, you know, the nine or 10 different metrics used to measure uh, behavioral diversity. Um, James Brereton and I have a paper under review uh, that uh, on the use of enclosure variability and doing some direct comparisons there. So there's another measure as well. So there's a ton of stuff that can be done to measure uh, uh, animal welfare accurately, um, successfully, and that's really important. Uh, so there's my big data spiel. So, other than that, um, the two other really key – I'm going to mention both of these, and then I'll go into both in detail. The two other important uh, measures, I, I think, for, or the two other aspects of animal welfare that are uh, important to take into consideration are the – they both are related to the, to the organism, to the, the, the animal you're working with in front of you. So And they happen to do deal with the species and the individual. So both of those are equally important, is the species and the individual. So we're talking about really the phylogeny and ontogeny of the organism, both. Um, and I think it's equally important. So in talking about the species, uh, I, I think it's easy for people... Um, to get wrapped up in, in just focusing on individual behavior or individ, what the or what that individual is doing, and forget that we need to keep in mind what the natural history is of the species we're dealing with. Um, so this is, for instance, when we're talking about big cats, any cats, actually, for for that matter, it's very, uh, it, it's easy to focus instead on something like, well, we need to get them more active, or we need to get them to, uh, be, to be more uh, uh, active in some way, to, to engage in more behaviors, different behaviors, etc., at this time of day, etc., um, and It's very easy to focus on that and negate the fact that, well, we may be dealing with a a species and across all the felids, many of them, uh, most of them are spending most of their day, they're supposed to be spending most of their day sleeping. So we need to take that into account for their welfare above and beyond everything else. We also get wrapped up in things like, um, this is a discussion that's going to be coming up this weekend, uh, in a bird version of this, uh, virtual, uh, behavior chat I'm doing with, uh, Emily Strong and Stephanie Edlin. We're going to be talking about common versus typical behaviors. And I think it's often easy for people to say, oh, that's, you know, this is, this is just what my, what, what this animal does. This is just what we expect. And uh, so to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all dogs do a bunch of, of tail chasing. They all do that. All dogs spend a lot of time barking. But is that common across the dogs or is that typical for dogs? So there is a difference. To say, well, we have a, a level of acceptable stereotypic activity that we expect out of bears because this is just what they do in captivity but should they be doing that so just because it's common doesn't mean it's typical so and all these things have to have the the frame of reference of the species so there's that um and then the uh, the the third point and equally as important as the other two is the individual because I think it's very easy with respect to welfare to lose sight of the learning history and uh, of the particulars of any one individual, um, any organism uh, that uh, is, is extremely relevant, um, that we're not just throwing everyone, everything away to saying, well, yes, but this is what tigers do. Okay, but what about this tiger? And this is where, um, of course, the importance of of applied behavior analysis comes into play. This is the uh, really what applied behavior analysis does particularly well, is the use of things like within subject methodology to be able to understand uh, with continuous data what is happening uh, at any point in time for that organism. so that importance to be able to uh, focus on clinical evidence, we can call it clinical evidence at this, I, I generally tend to call it applied relevant data. So stuff that is about what that organism is doing and how we've effectively changed it. So I think that's, that's really important for uh, enrichment and training procedures that we know what the performance is of this individual. And then we are tailoring our welfare for that individual. Um, and and again, like I said, this is uh, I, you know I am a behavior analyst among many other things, and this is this is uh, part of my biggest uh, training history. Myself is in focusing on behavior analytic aspects of welfare and uh, the behavior of individuals. Um, At some level, this is uh, behavior analysis talks about more than just the individual, but it's really important that we attend to uh, specifics about the individual as well when we're talking about welfare. So that's my three.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much Eddie for sharing these. And for those of you listening and wondering because this podcast is going to be in the future and if you're like, "Oh, what was that behavioral behavior chat, the virtual behavior chats, uh, bird edition that Eddie was mentioning, it, you will probably be able to find it on YouTube and it was broadcasted um, out on the 23rd of January in 2021. Okay, thanks so much, Eddie. And looking forward to hearing from you again in another episode or online on the Pause platform.
3: Yeah, perfect. Great. Thanks.
0: Welcome Dr. Samantha Ward, Senior Lecturer in Animal Science at Nottingham Trent University.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Absolutely delighted and very much looking forward to your top three regarding animal welfare assessments.
4: Thanks. Should I just go now? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Shall we Sorry. do that
0: again? Because otherwise I would yeah. have
4: to chop that out. Yeah, okay. sure. Sorry. I wasn't sure whether it was. No gonna... worries. <laughs> we
0: can just do it again. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Samantha Ward, Senior Lecturer in Animal Science at Nottingham Trent University.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yes, absolutely delighted and very much looking forward to hearing your top three when it comes to animal welfare assessments.
4: Thanks. Yeah, for me, I think one of the most important things to remember is that welfare is an individual uh, component. And so we need to be bearing that in mind. So although we might be thinking of a group of animals, um, we need to make sure that actually we're measuring individuals as well as then maybe mapping that out according to the group. My second uh, important thing for assessment is that you're thinking about Uh, multiple and consistent methods and measures um, of welfare. So it's not, in my opinion, I don't feel it's right just to measure behavior. Um, We need to be thinking about all of those different components of what make up animal welfare and including those within our assessments. And the final thing um, is the impacts of humans. Uh, So a lot of my research focuses around human-animal interactions. And I think it's not necessarily just the interactions, but also how keepers or staff are integrated and working with the animals. So the housing and the husbandry um, is really important as well.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much, Sam. Thank
4: you. Our
0: next guest is Jason Waters. He is the Executive Vice President of Wellness and Animal Behavior at the San Francisco Zoological Society an Associate Adjunct Professor at UC Davis Department of Animal Science, and also an Executive Director of Zoo Biology. Welcome, Jason.
5: Thanks, Sabrina.
0: Wonderful. Lovely to have you on the podcast. This is a compilation of all kinds of impressions and advice and suggestions and insights of different animal welfare experts and scientists and delighted to have you on this podcast to hear your top three when it comes to animal welfare assessments.
5: Well, thanks for inviting me, Sabrina. And I hope you are doing well over there in Spain. As far as my top three, when it comes to animal welfare assessment, um, me and my team have spent quite a bit of time working on behavioral assessments of animal welfare. Um, In part, that's because that's the expertise that we have. And also because we, uh, we are driven to sort of help to develop tools that other people might be able to use. And we recognize that behavior is something that anybody can observe, not necessarily anybody can interpret We we do need to have expert interpretations of behavior, but we can collect behavioral data without any special tools or special laboratories and that sort of thing. So we've really focused on trying to develop tools that maybe we could pass around to other people in zoos and aquariums that may or may not have um, physiology labs or other types of laboratories that they might use to assess animal welfare. One of the things that we um, that we also feel is important with using animal behavior is that um, sort of the next thing, I guess, number two, input. Inputs are not welfare. Um, certainly we have to understand and the things that we are putting in and providing for animals so that we can understand how we might make some modifications if the outcomes, the outputs, don't reflect what we would like to see in terms of positive animal welfare. So it's important for people to realize that just because you're providing the things that should give good animal welfare doesn't necessarily ensure that you have given good animal welfare. You actually have to ask the animals. Um, Another thing that we feel is, really important to understand is that each animal is its own individual. And welfare is essentially a, a characteristic of an individual animal. So we might be able to provide, this goes back to the one about inputs as well, we might provide all the things that we think should should support animal welfare. But we might not see positive animal welfare in each individual. <clears throat> Again, because different personalities and so on and so forth might reflect different uh, perceptions of the, of the things that they've been provided. <clears throat> this also comes into play when we're looking at animals at perhaps different stages in their lives, young animals compared to older animals. We tend to just use individual animals as their own point of reference, so to speak. We ask each individual animal, how is your welfare? Not necessarily, how is your welfare compared to this other individual? The reason is that sometimes we feel like it's easy to fall into what you might call a sort of a welfare trap, if you will, if you assume that an older individual, for example, that is no longer capable of doing certain things physically, is suffering from a poor welfare situation. That may or may not be the case, but it, but we don't like to reflect on these older individuals per se, as being necessarily reduced in welfare because they can no longer perform the things that they used to be able to do when they were younger. Instead, we ask, are you still engaged, still interested, still experiencing positive quality of life and, Can I make some modifications that will facilitate maybe your physical shortcomings? And I think one of the other things to really, when using behavioral assessments of welfare, I think one of the other really key aspects is to understand the context. Don't just record behavior, record what else is going on at the time understand what's happening. How is the animal responding to its current moment? What do we expect that current moment to generate in terms of optimistic or pessimistic responses in individuals? We often ask animal caretakers to reflect on animal welfare and that's a very important thing to do. We also ask um, animals to do things when they're around their caretakers. Their caretakers tend to drive behaviors and oftentimes those are behaviors that might be referred to as sort of optimistic behaviors because they're caretakers. Animal caretakers often provide really great things, positive things for the animals. So understanding the context in which the observations are made may also help us to understand a way to interpret what we're seeing. So, I guess those are my top three things.
3: Wonderful.
0: Thanks so much, Jason. So, the importance of looking at what your expertise is, how you can best develop that and serve the broader community. The difference between obviously recognizing what is care and what is the experience of the animal, the well being of the animal, the welfare, and the importance of focusing on the individual. And I'm delighted that you and I are working on, you know, you already mentioned older animals. So you and I are working on, on a book chapter related to that on a book that's coming out later this year in caring for elderly animals. So really wonderful examples. And thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, Jason.
5: All right. Thanks for having me, Sabrina.
0: Welcome, Dr. Stephanie Allard, Vice President, Animal Care and Welfare at the National Aquarium. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, absolutely delighted that you are also joining this podcast and sharing your ideas and visions about animal welfare assessments. The floor is all yours. Great.
6: So uh, as many of us are doing, I am spending a lot of time thinking about welfare assessments and how to best try to understand the experiences that the animals in our care have so that we can set them up for success uh, and ensure that they're thriving um, as much of the time as possible. And there are a number of different areas that I think are perhaps ones that we need to continue to explore um, about sort of the process of welfare assessments, um, in addition, of course, to all of the very, you know, uh, many questions that that I have that I, I'm sure a lot of other people have um, about sort of more specifics uh, of, you know, the types of questions we ask in welfare assessments, et cetera. Um, so you know, where I I try to start my thinking is about the process itself. Um, And, you know, animal welfare science obviously is always evolving. Uh, We're continually learning new things uh, about animals and what their needs and what their wants are. And that means that our processes for evaluating welfare um, of those animals also has to continually be progressing. That being said, We can't and you know this is a I think a paraphrase of uh, uh, somebody's quote once upon a time uh, we can't let perfection be the enemy of progress, Um, and that means that we we still have to dive in um, and and start assessing um, at whatever level we have ready to start asking the questions that, that we think are the ones that need to be asked. And so there's a lot of work to be done to structure assessments in ways that are going to reveal the information that we need to know uh, for, for the animals. Um, but we also have to balance that need with systems and processes that are feasible and realistic for staff to undertake. Um, you know, Some, some organizations, Uh, And I'm, you know, sort of more specifically thinking about aquariums and zoos right now, Uh, but some organizations have animal welfare staff or animal welfare scientists um, who who work there and who are uh, focused a bit more on welfare assessments and on, on welfare science. But other places don't necessarily have that, uh, and, and the folks who are either shaping the process for their organization, and certainly all of the different um, professionals who are filling out assessments for the animals in their care, you know, have to balance that out with all of the other things they have to do. And so trying to balance what goes into your welfare assessment system or process, um. With the ability of the people who have to actually do them, um, that balance needs to be reached, right? And uh, and that can sometimes be tricky because we know we have a lot of questions. And so where where do we start to to say, okay, perhaps we need to focus uh, and and limit ourselves a little bit to what is reasonable for staff to do that still. Gives us meaningful information about the welfare state of of the various animals, and so that's you know sort of that one uh, one area that I think about. The next piece of it, which I think is you know it's certainly a challenge for me, and I I, I know it's a challenge for for a lot of us, um, is that although we've come a really long way uh, in terms of putting more emphasis on the animal's actual experience, right? So the outputs or or the outcomes, however you want to refer to them, uh, rather than focusing on just the inputs or what we're providing to animals. Uh, And this is great progress, right? Uh, However, we still have a lot of unanswered questions about the validity of the indicators that we are using um, because they haven't necessarily been validated uh, or haven't been validated for a particular species. Uh, And since welfare is experienced at the level of the individual, trying to ensure that we're capturing the right indicators um, can be challenging. And I think this is particularly difficult for some species, um, including things like fish and invertebrates, uh, for which we have a lot less knowledge, and perhaps even less capacity to obtain more knowledge. Uh, So that's kind of my plug to say that we need to do more research, we need uh, organizations to invest in supporting the the work that needs to be done to validate indicators. and for all of us to work collaboratively in order to obtain and share that knowledge um, as as we get it. And then the last piece that I try to emphasize when it comes to welfare assessments is is to me sometimes the, the most critical part, which is what happens after you do a welfare assessment. And that's the discussion that should come out of a welfare assessment, um, the the review of it, the discussion of it, um, so that there's an understanding uh, from all of the people involved uh, about what that animals or or, or group of animals, depending on how you're doing your assessments, uh, how they're doing, what it means in terms of their welfare, right? and then what steps do you need to take? Um, Should there be changes that need to be made? Uh, in order to uh, to move the sort of the needle uh, towards the great welfare side of things, uh, if if there if there is something that needs to be addressed, and I think sometimes we're so wrapped up in making sure we have a welfare assessment tool um, that we don't always get to the to the piece where okay now what uh, you know we're we're. We're thrilled that we've gotten the assessments done, but you know, are we truly using the data that comes out of that—the results from those assessments—in a meaningful way that actually enhances the welfare of the animals? And so, uh, to me, that that discussion piece uh, is, is super critical, uh, and you know, part of it is ensuring that we are aligned in the words that we're using and the definitions of uh of things so that we're all speaking the same language when we're having those discussions we're all uh we're all open to that um and that we are uh looking at it from each other's perspectives uh that allows i think for more a more comprehensive review of what an animal's experience is so i think that is where i leave it Um, you know i I'm always, as I said, you know, trying to think about this and, and right now trying to focus on these big picture segments of the processes we're using to evaluate welfare because ultimately um, as we start to know more and, uh, and we get better at doing what it is that we do, um, the animals are always going to benefit from that. So I
0: think that's it, thank you so much. Wonderful, thank you so much, Stephanie. When it comes to thoughts, considerations and visions for animal welfare and animal welfare assessments, I am thinking of animal welfare being an end in itself as it pertains to the experiences of the individual animal. And while we have a lot of other goals such as conservation, education, engagement and research, these are not greater goals, as we often name them. Animal welfare and the well being of animals is and ought to be a goal in itself. And this brings to me this need to address that the discrepancy between the argument that animal welfare pertains to the individual as it is experienced by them, while time and again results are written up producing and requiring a mean. So if welfare is about the individual, then it's paramount that individual experiences are seen as important, if not more than the average. And while discussions on what falls within the norm, in other words, what is to be expected for a given species, should also be a start of our understanding what the needs of a species might be, when we are trying to understand the individuals it will be key to put back the I into the individual and recognize why animal welfare needs to also be the study of one and animal welfare assessments need to reflect this need of course including preferences and personality like we discussed with professor Hannah Buchanan-Smith In the iBuzz podcast number 27. When it comes to animal welfare assessments it is also important to understand what support is available within your organization you know what with regards to like the know-how in-house of the people working and studying the animals and where you might need to reach out for external expertise and support or technology and all the other aspects that we talked about when we were speaking with Professor Robert Young in the iBuzz podcast 24. And this is of course in order to roll out and also maintain an animal welfare program based on animal welfare assessments that shed light on the effectiveness in elucidating the animal experience. And lastly, what comes to mind for me is that while there are still so many unknowns and we shouldn't be stopped in our tracks and waiting for research to come in, uh, also because there's a lot of unknown unknowns, let us err on the side of caution. So to overattribute and assume all the experiences that animals may have, to consider all their perspectives and feelings until we know differently as the burden of proof needs to be on our side. So to not only engage in risk assessment developments and risk assessments with animals when we do animal welfare assessments, but also engage in the development of flourishing assessments in our quest to of course, promote optimal care and service of the animals in our care. As I said, of course, there are many more scientists and practitioners with insights on animal welfare assessments. So consider this the first of many other multi-speaker podcasts that help us think and importantly act for the animals in our care. Because well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And the PAWS platform is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice because we're all about action where you can get education and tools you need so you and the animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description or anywhere else on social media to become a member today.